But today we're going to learn about Peter. And we're going to learn about Peter being asked by Jesus, do you love me? And Peter says, Lord, you know I love you. And then Jesus says, then feed my sheep. So here's the three things. Do you love me? Yes, I love you. Then feed my sheep. Okay? So is there somebody that would want to help me just real quick? Because I'm going I'm to just kind of go over and rehearse that with somebody. If five years old to... Okay, I've got one over there. Are you ready? You want to help me? Come on, come on over here. Come on over here, buddy. So I want you to repeat this after me, okay? If we love God, if we, love God we will love his people. We will love his people. God grow our love. God grow our love. That was so good. That was so good. That was so good. Lennon, do you want to help me? Guys, can you thank can you thank them for helping me? Sweetheart, you heard what we said. Okay, you ready? If we love God, if we love God, we will love his people. We will love his people. God grow our love. God grow our love. That is so good. That is so good. Thank you, sweetheart. Thank you so much. So kids, would you be listening as we, as we read the scripture today? Would you be listening for that? Don't just believe Pastor Billy because I just said that. What we are saying, we want you to be able to find in your Bible. So be listening along with your mom and dad. Read, read the Bible along with your mom and dad as, as we study God's word this morning. Would you open your Bibles to the last sermon in the book of John, the Gospel of John, chapter 21. Verses 9 through 25 will be our text this morning. And uh, as I said, it's the last sermon in the Gospel of John. I hope the way this ends today, you'll see why we're going to do just kind of a, a review, kind of a flyover over the book of 1 John between next week and the beginning of Advent. And you'll see why. Because the book of John, just the book of 1 John, essentially just describes what I did with our kids. If we love God, then we'll love God's people. God, grow our love. And it's such a great baton pass from the Gospel of John, because the Gospel of John was written that we might believe, and that in believing we'd have life in his name. And then 1 John is written to say, okay, the believer's life should look like this. And it's so filled with the love of the Father, our love for one another. Oh, I hope you'll, I hope you'll be so blessed with that. Um, so thankful for Eric's message last week, reminded us his main point was fruitfulness in our mission requires reliance on our Messiah, and it wonderfully showed us how the disciples were learning that when we rely on the risen Christ, he turns defeat into victory, empty nets <laughs> into a huge catch. He turns emptiness into fullness and transforms death into life. So as we look to our text this morning, we're going to be reminded that we live in a world that loves to create an atmosphere or set a mood in order to get people's attention, to get them to focus on something. That's what, that's what it's always, there's a goal to setting a mood or creating an atmosphere, to focus on something, to get them to feel a certain way or to think a certain way. So husbands and wives may try to set a mood to celebrate a wedding anniversary or a birthday or Valentine's Day, and they do it through flowers and candy and candlelight or a visit to a favorite restaurant. Churches try to create an atmosphere 
uh, for worship through the way they, the auditorium is lit or not lit. I don't recommend that, but uh, colorful backdrops for the song lyrics, staging, fog machines. And just It's all supposed to create an atmosphere. Sports arenas try to create an atmosphere of fun and celebration, uh, victory and antagonism <laughs> toward the opponent. And how do they do that? Through marching bands and banners and balloons and loud music. And it's all done to try to get someone to feel a certain way, to think a certain way, and even to act in a certain way. So as we read this morning, I want you to notice how Jesus is the expert at creating an atmosphere. He does an amazing job of creating an atmosphere. And the loving atmosphere he is creating is to lead Peter to repentance and to restoration and to sacrifice and to contentment. And guys, just maybe he wants to do that in us too. Would you join me in the reading of this last section of the Gospel of John, beginning in verse 9. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and he hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of his disciples asked him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and he took the bread and he gave it to them. And so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. And when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And now Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And this he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had been reclining at table close to him and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? The Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? 
And when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. (laughs) Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are so many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you for Peter. (laughs) Thank you for putting Peter in the Bible because of all the characters in the Bible, he is certainly one that we can most relate to. And God, the same love he experienced, the same mercy, the kindness that led him to repentance, the, the compassion that restored his calling, the, the grace empowerment that would cause him to persevere to the end, contentment that would protect him from comparing his life to others. Oh God, we really need all of those truths for our own hearts this morning. So would you speak to us as clearly as you did to Peter? And would you change our hearts as much as you did his? For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. I think a little trip down memory lane with the Apostle Peter might be helpful to get a better feel for why Jesus was trying to create this certain atmosphere uh, that, that he was using with this breakfast on the beach. This was a man who had faith to walk on water until he didn't. This was, this was the Peter who said things like, you will never wash my feet. Though everyone else forsakes you, I never will. The man who said he would never deny Jesus, even if it meant that he would go to jail or be killed. The man who rebuked Jesus, do you remember that one? He rebuked Jesus and told him that you, would, you, Jesus, will never go to the cross. Only to hear Jesus say, remember what Jesus said? Get behind me, Satan. The man who thought it was a good idea to cut off the high priest's servants here in defense of Jesus. And this was the Peter who three times denied ever knowing Jesus in Jesus' greatest hour of need. How would you feel about somebody like that? Somebody who professed such devotion to you, but was the picture of inconsistency and roller coaster emotional ups and downs. How would you respond to someone who, who hurt you deeply? How would you respond? Well, isn't it amazing how sights and sounds and smells and tastes and words can make something you did in the past seem like you just did it yesterday? Think about how Jesus created an atmosphere to do a deep work of forgiveness and grace and mercy in Peter's life. He used a miraculous catch of fish to remind Peter of the amazing beginning of our relationship. And that that was so kind of Jesus. And his mission to be a fisher of men. And he also used the sight and smell and warmth of a charcoal fire 
Do you ever read things like that in Scripture? That's so interesting that John took the time to say it was a charcoal fire. What was that all about? Well, it's very significant because it would remind Peter of the fire he warmed himself by, which was called a charcoal fire, when he denied knowing Christ three times. At least he was warm when he was denying Christ in John 18. Jesus used his words like a surgeon's scalpel. When he chose to use Peter's old name of Simon, did you pick up on that one? It was another atmosphere creation. He calls him Simon, his old name, not his new name, Peter. In his great mercy, he used three questions and three answers to not only remind Peter of the three questions and the three answers he gave about his relationship with Christ and the three denials he gave of ever knowing Christ, but it was also to lead Peter to accept responsibility for his denials in order to receive the grace of repentance and restoration. You know, Peter could have been a lot like me and just say, well, Jesus, I was really tired. You ever, you ever tell your spouse you've, you've yelled at them and, oh, well, I'm, I'm sorry, I was tired. It was late. I was stressed out. It was so cold. And Jesus is saying, no, this is coming from a problem in your heart. Let's deal with your heart. And though it wasn't included in this narrative, it's quite likely, you guys, that Peter was awakened every morning since that horrible night to the sound of a rooster crowing at daybreak. That was the culture. Those roosters were, crow were crowing every morning. A sound that not only told him it was time to start a new day, but also a sound that reminded him of his worst day. Quite an atmosphere, Jesus is setting, don't you think? A rooster's crow was a relentless reminder of his sin and of his failure. What about you? Are there sins and mistakes in your past that still haunt you? Are there failures that try to convince you that you've been disqualified from the hope of a fruitful and joyful future in Christ? That after what you've done, you just probably need to settle for God's plan B in your life. You've, plan A, that's, that's for other more successful Christians. And if so, what is your charcoal fire? Your charcoal fire that regularly reminds you of your failure or your sin. What is your crowing rooster that won't let you forget what you've done or failed to do for Christ or for others? Are there certain words or phrases people use that, that sound more like rejection and hate than correction and love? Can I encourage you to... I, I listen, I know I'm getting older and I'm fighting against being a grumpy grandpa. But can I encourage you to not adopt the culture's use of the word triggered? I think that phrase is typically in the context of people who have no concept of a loving God who died for their sins and gives a new beginning to them. I, don't, I, don't, I, think, it's a, I think it's a worldview, a, a lack of Jesus worldview that would cause us to talk about being triggered. 
Because it's as though these things are happening outside the sovereign love and power of God. Can I ask you this? Is it possible that God may actually be creating an atmosphere to meet you and heal your heart through these things? Is that possible? Is it possible it's not, it's not the world triggering you and uncaring people saying things to evoke a response in you and you just have to give a slave's obedience to that kind of response? Is it possible that God may be actually creating an appointment with you to do deep heart work in your life, to heal you and grow you? Do you think it's possible? I, I hope a few would say amen. I would say, instead of saying triggered, how about we say, oh, this is a prickly providence. I don't, I probably heard it from somebody, but no, I didn't get it from Hannah Green Gables. Okay, honey, this is, this is my time. This is my time. Um, <laughs> what would a prickly providence be? Well, this is uncomfortable. This is hard. This reminds me of blank incident. Oh, God's in control. God's allowed this moment in my life to change me. Is it possible that God could use the rooster's crow to become a reminder of new mercies and not old mistakes? Is it possible that the smell of a charcoal fire could become a reminder of sins forgiven more than sins committed? Is it possible that your fears of disqualification and rejection can be overcome by God's grace for restoration? And we all say, amen, it is possible. So the main point this morning is this. The life of a believer is compelled by a sincere love for Christ and revealed by a sacrificial love for Christ's people. The first segment is that the love of Christ leads us to repentance. And please, like, I think it was Martin Luther that talked about that, that the repentance should be a daily experience in the life of a believer, not just what got us into, into salvation. It should be a regular experience of God's grace dealing with where we fall short and helping us grow stronger. So he was already creating an atmosphere for the expression of his love and mercy to bring about repentance and restoration and ministry and mission. And Jesus starts by meeting the disciples at a place that felt more like home than Jerusalem felt. So here they are by the lake, by the, by the sea, and on the beach, a place that they're very at home with, very comfortable with. It's not like Jerusalem. It's not where all the anger was and the horrible killing of Jesus was and the threats of persecution was. Sometimes it's just easier to receive grace for repentance when you feel more at home than you feel more like people are watching your every move. And may God make our church a place like that. That this is a place where you feel at home for God to do deep work in your heart, to change your heart. Jesus had given them an amazing catch of fish and it reminded them of the joy they felt when they first heard his call. And he prepared a charcoal fire to remind Peter of his most recent fall. So the first time they heard his call, but oh my goodness, and my most recent fall. 
that he'd actually prepared a breakfast of fish and bread. He first loved them, didn't he? he was, Jesus is always first loving us. I know I gave you some fish to catch, but I'm providing for you. You're not providing for me. I'm loving you first. He provided for their needs before he asked them to serve him by bringing some fish that they caught. 153 fish. Okay, what's that about? I don't know, so we'll keep going. Um, no, you guys, there's been so many spiritualizing of that, and I, that's the last thing I want to do. I don't want to look for hidden meanings in that. God's word will explain things to us. God's, God's you know, uh, scripture will comment on scripture. And so I don't have something from scripture that comments on this. I would say this. It's more likely that they knew this number because these guys were fishermen. Any fishermen here? Anybody who likes to fish? I know I'm talking to West Texas people, but yeah, okay. If you, you ever go home and your wife says, how many did you catch? And you go, no, I don't know. There's just some. No, you know how many fish you caught. These guys are fishermen. They always counted fish, and they remembered their largest catch. I still have memories of being living in New Orleans and going fishing with Perry Fry. And I lost more redfish than he, he quit taking me. I lost so many redfish. I, but I remembered the ones I caught. But actually, I think what it does, really, is it's reinforcing that John was an eyewitness. It's important that we have eyewitness testimony to God's word. We're not like other, other false religions. There's an eyewitness testimony that's a very significant realm of our faith and the reliability of our faith. And so John's being an eyewitness of the works that Jesus continued to do after his resurrection. So Peter pulls in the net and the fish all by himself. Jesus gave the command and, and the grace to, to catch the fish. And Jesus gave the grace for Peter to pull that thing up on shore. Probably was very heavy. Maybe some with some miraculous strength there. I found it interesting that the word haul up onto shore is the same word that Jesus used when he said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. The, it's an impossible task for us to bring all peoples to Christ unless Jesus personally draws them by his sovereign grace. None of the nets were torn. None of the fish were going to get away. <laughs> That's, I love that. Don't you love that? All that the Father gives Jesus will come to him, and he will lose none of them. There's some great reminders to things that Jesus has already told them in the Gospel of John. And then he says, come have breakfast. <laughs> Don't you love that? The risen Savior says, come have breakfast with me. You know, your mom told you that breakfast was an important meal. Well, it sure is in this case. Come and eat. This is not a, something that says, hey, I'm going to, you, you, you approach me and you wonder if I'm going to push you away or not. No, this was just assurance. You come, draw close to me. I'm drawing you back into fellowship with me. And as Jesus broke the bread to feed him, how could they not think of him blessing the little bit of bread that fed more than 5,000? And the bread that reminded them of his body broken for them. Miraculous catch of fish, no nets torn, supernatural strength, charcoal fire. Jesus feeds them. No one was asking who this was. They knew it was Jesus. And this was the third time that Jesus revealed himself to them after the resurrection. Already Jesus was drawing them closer to him through his mercy and kindness. But now his kindness specifically focuses on Peter. 
and is specifically to draw him to repentance. Can I tell you something right now? I am very confident that all of us have sinned today, let alone all this week. And I'm very confident that God in his mercy is wanting to do the same for us, to use this text to draw us to repentance because we've been making more excuses about our sin than repenting for it. Simon, son of John. Wait, 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 wait. What? Simon, son of John? Jesus, don't you mean Peter? No. Simon, son of John. Jesus, that was my old name. You gave me a new name, Peter. The name that meant I wouldn't be just some insignificant pebble in your sight and pushed around and kicked around and getting caught in somebody's sandal, but that you would give me grace to be rock solid as your disciple with you, Jesus, as the very foundation of it all. Well, this got Peter's attention. It's sort of like my dad or mom. When, when they needed to discipline me, which was a lot, they didn't ever just call me Billy. They called me Billy for supper. They call me Billy, you know, but you know where I'm going. If I'm in trouble, Billy Paul. It's Billy Paul. And if I was really in trouble, William Paul. Paul's my middle name. No, no. Um, it was serious. So Peter, here's what Jesus is saying. I'm speaking to you with the name you were given at birth. Because you're living like you did before I called you to follow me. You've drifted from me. Have you drifted from the Lord? In the words of Revelation, you've abandoned the love that you had at the first. But as I take you back to, as I take you back to when you first met me, I'm also reminding you that it was by grace that you believed then, through faith, and that faith was not of yourself. It was a gift of God. So I'm not here to cast you away by calling you by your name. I'm, I'm saying you're not living the way somebody who loves God and loves his people would live. But I'm also reminding you that grace began our relationship and grace will lead you home. I'm not here to cast you away. I'm here to draw you closer to my heart through giving you a chance to own up to your sin and repent of it. Do you know that Jesus holding us securely in his loving hands, actually at times allows us to feel deeply hurt. Guys, please don't believe this, this, this phony Christian view that being a Christian should, should involve no pain. Did you know that even the Lord as a surgeon may have to, to take a, a dislocated joint and, and say, get ready, and pop that thing back in. It may hurt. But it's for your healing and it's for your growth. In verse 15, Jesus asked the most important question he could ever ask of any of us. Not will you give everything to me, Peter. Not will you go back to work, Peter. Not will you promise never to, feel, to fail me ever again, Peter. It was Simon, do you love me? I think that should be the first question on an ordination exam. I think that should be the first question of anyone that works for youth or works with children. Or I think that should be the first question that, I, that you ask a couple who wants to get married and they come for marriage counseling. Do you love Jesus? Do you love him? 
And he says more than these. The word love is agapao. So agape is how we would say it. It's a self-giving, undeserved, all-sacrificing, unconditional, even contra-conditional, meaning that, that we don't get what we deserve. It's not only unconditional, but he doesn't give us what we do deserve. And it comes from the nature of the giver. It's not something in us that God just has these warm fuzzies, and so he's moved to love us because there's something in us. No, God is love. And it's a love that especially characterizes the way God in Jesus Christ loves us. But Peter will respond with a different word for love, and that's phileo. It's his friendship. It's affection. It's a reactionary love. It reacts to, oh, this is nice. I like being loved. I'm going to react in, in kind. I'm going I'm to love you back. I'm going to have friendship back for you. I'm going to give you uh, my, my affections back to you. You know, a lot of theologians are uh, all over the map on this. They say that two, these two words for love don't make a difference, really, because they are used interchangeably in the way God's love is spoken about for us and just other sections, even in the Gospel of John, they're used interchangeably. But I think in this case, the context implies that the words were specifically chosen to help move forward the mercy Christ was offering to Peter and the repentance he was drawing out of Peter. And let me explain why. Peter, do you love me more than these? Jesus is referencing an earlier declaration that Peter made about the depth of his devotion to Christ. I put it in your notes because I think it's important that you see it. Then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter answered him, though they, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away because I'm super Christian. That's not what it says. Kids, that's not in the, that was Pastor Billy being silly. That's not what the scripture said. Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you're, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter said, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. So when Jesus is saying, do you love me more than these? What is he getting at? Something he, that Jesus was asking Peter if he loved him more than fishing. You need to, you know, you turn away from fishing. I have something else for you. Maybe that's that. I don't think that's the main point here. Peter, not only did you declare an agape kind of love to me, you also said that you loved me more than all the rest of the disciples loved me. That's pretty arrogant. That's pretty, that's pretty proud. After all that has happened, Peter, and all that you've done, do you love me like that? You see where he's getting to the heart? There's a self-sufficiency issue. There's a pride issue that Jesus wants to root out and bring him to repentance for and give him grace for transformation and restoration. Do you really love me? Do, is your love really better than John and James? And is there, than all of these guys? Is it really better? And Peter responded, Lord, you know that I love you, meaning phileo. Lord, you know I, I have affection for you. I, you're my friend. But I don't love you better than these guys. You see, humility, there's a brokenness, there's a contriteness in his answer. And he's acknowledging, Lord, you know. You know all things. 
Jesus is not asking for Peter, tell me how you feel. He's asking him to tell the truth. Tell the truth about he in pride and self-sufficiency thought he could love Jesus with the highest expression of love out of his own strength and wisdom and goodness and in truth to tell Jesus what the true condition of his heart was. It's not like he doesn't know. And Jesus' kindness did indeed work repentance and truthfulness in Peter's heart. I love you. I phileo you. It's, it's not the all-giving love that you give to me. It's not the all-sacrificing love that you deserve. But thanks to your grace, I, thanks to your grace, even the love I have came from you. I do love you. I just realized that I'm going to need your help to enable me to love you in a manner worthy of the gospel. I think that'd be a great prayer for all of us, don't you think? Are you loving Jesus the way you sh- that he deserves to be loved? If you're saying, yes, we need to have a talk after church. None of us are. But wouldn't it be a great heart pastor to say, oh, Lord, I love you, but oh, my goodness, my love needs to grow. My love needs to mature. By now, my love should have looked like this for all the time I've been a professing believer. But I'm so thankful that you don't count that against me and you'll meet me where I am this morning to help me grow from here. Jesus asked the same question a second time, the same word, agape, agapo, agapao. Peter responds with the same answer, oh, you know I love you, phileo. Jesus asked the same question a third time, only this time Jesus uses the same word that, Jesus, that Peter used. Simon, do you phileo me? Now, Peter's saddened that Jesus has asked him three times if he loved him. And the third time, he seems to be asking, okay, Peter, let's really get to the core do you really love me with an affectionate friendship kind of love? And Peter responds, great response. Lord, you know everything. You know that I truly do love you with an affectionate love, with an affectionate love of a friend. Spurgeon tells a story of he visited a lady and she was just telling him, Pastor, Pastor Spurgeon, I just, I just, don't believe I love Jesus as my, as my Lord and Savior. And Spurgeon went over to a table and he took a piece of paper out and he wrote something down. He put it in front of her and he said, I want you to sign this. And, and what he wrote was, from this day forward, I declare that I do not love Jesus Christ and want nothing to do with him in my life. And she says, oh no, I could never do that to Jesus. So you see, the Lord knows It's not a perfect love he's calling you to have for him. It's a dependent love that he's calling you to have for him. In the same way that we say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I think we could pray this. Lord, I love you, but help my weak love to grow stronger. Was Jesus just doing a payback to Peter? You know, what what is this? Is this a payback? I'll get you with these three questions. Was he just wiping his nose in it? No. Was Jesus trying to make him feel bad enough for it? You ever tried to, I did that with the boys when I, sometimes when I was parenting them. I'm going to make you guys, I'll make you feel bad enough for what you did in disobeying King Daddy. And, man, and, then, and then you'll change. Dr. Phil, how'd that work for you, Billy? Ask the boys. They'll tell you. Um, no. Here's what was going on. Just as Peter denied Jesus three times, Jesus was not only helping Peter experience forgiveness, Jesus was changing the narrative. I love this. 
Peter would not ultimately be known for his denials. He would be known for his love. And if you don't believe me, go and read 1 Peter and 2 Peter this afternoon. You're going to see a transformed man. Charles Wesley, he put this so well in a hymn he wrote. It's in your notes. Jesus, full of truth and grace, more full of grace than I of sin, yet once again I seek thy face. Open thine arms and take me in. Thou knowest the way to bring me back, my fallen spirit to restore. Oh, for thy truth and mercy's sake, forgive and bid me sin no more. The ruins of my soul repair and make my heart a house of prayer. Isn't that beautiful? So beautiful. I think that's what's happening here. Jesus is not first calling him to obedience. He's first calling him to love. Everything else about your Christian walk is dependent upon God's love for you and your love for him. Everything else flows out of that. Peter couldn't have maxed out God's gracious forgiveness with three horrible denials. Oh, Peter, you maxed out my forgiveness. No, and he won't do it with us either. For us, since three blatant denials really equal or maybe beat any of our top three sins, isn't it good news for us that God's gracious forgiveness certainly extends and exceeds our worst sins? Oh, I'm so thankful of that, guys. I, get, I know I get passionate, but it's, I know what a sinner I am. And his grace is greater than my sin. Second point is that the love of Christ restores our calling to love Christ's people. The rest of these are, are much more brief. He, Jesus wants us to have broken and contrite hearts before him, before he calls and commissions us. Do you see that? Each command to feed my sheep, tend my sheep, feed my sheep, it follows upon Simon's demonstration of true repentance and humility and no confidence in self and honesty and confession and dependency on the love of God. In God's kingdom, being forgiven by Christ comes with it having a divine purpose for Christ. I don't know if you ever answered some kind of an altar call before and you were just thankful to be forgiven, but you weren't taught that being forgiven means now you have a divine purpose. It's, it's, it's inseparable. To be saved means to be loving others the way you've been loved by God. There's a divine ministry and mission and purpose in salvation. Forgiveness is not just a, a cherished thing you keep to yourself and then you, you treat others the way you've been treating them. No, it's, it's both. It's two sides of the same coin. Forgiveness and purpose. Forgiveness and mission. So that's why he says, do you love me? Feed my sheep. God loves us. God gives grace, uh, grace to love him. God gives grace to love his people. Guys, uh, it, for it, whether, whatever it is, in marriage, in parenting, in children's ministry, in, in potentially being a future pastor, it is just so easy to forget about love, God's love for me and my love for him. And it's so easy to try to give my best for you. And you see when that happens, when I'm taking my eyes off his love for me and I'm just doing my best for you, what's going to start happening to this pastor? You tell me. I'm going to get hurt feelings. I'm going to get bitter. I'm going to get resentful. 
None of us are sufficient in marriage. Don't we do that as husbands and wives? We take our eyes off the love, the all-satisfying love and treasure and forgiveness God's giving us in Christ. We take our eyes off the greatest thing I want to do is to love you. And then God says, okay, that's great. Now let's go love people. Let's go love my sheep. He calls us to love him as an expression of loving his people. If your eyes are just on the people, you are not likely going to persevere in ministry or marriage. And they're not our sheep. Did you notice that? They're his sheep. They're his sheep. So verse 15, feed my lambs, meaning feed the youngest. I, I, I think I could safely say in this text, do you love me? Serve in children's ministry. (laughs) Feed the youngest. Care for the weakest. So that doesn't mean just the youngest children. That might mean the fact that, listen, I'm getting older and I'm feeling my age more and more every day. How are we doing in caring for the oldest and the youngest, the weakest? How are we doing caring for the slowest to change? Those who are the most broken of the broken. Verse 16, tend my sheep, be like Christ our shepherd. What that means is lay your life down for these people because of the way I've laid my life down for you. Verse 17, feed my sheep. You know, the ones who constantly wander, the ones who bite. Did you know sheep bite? (laughs) Oh gosh. The ones who take what you give and run away with it. That's who you're supposed to be loving and feeding. Why? Because that really describes how I love you, knucklehead. You're a sheep that bites. You're a weak and wandering sheep. You are slow to change. Love them like I love you. Do you love me? Forgive others. Do you love me? Be patient and long-suffering. Do you love me? Nurture and cherish your wife. Do you love me? Respect and submit to your husband. Do you love me? Train up your children in the way they should go. Third point is the love of Christ requires grace-empowered sacrifice. Verse 18, Jesus tells Peter, you know, when you were young, you went where you wanted to go. When you were not led by, and I think that what that's saying is, I don't think it's just chronological stuff he's talking about there. I think he's talking about when you were not being led by God's, God's love and light. You just went everywhere you wanted to go. You did what you thought was best. But when you became old, when when now there's a change in your life, you were led by God's love and by love for his people. And you know what sometimes that happens? Sometimes you get persecuted for it. Peter, when you faced my death on the cross, you ran away. So do you see what Jesus is doing here? He says you're going to be bound up, and then it says you're going to spread your arms. And Jesus, what Jesus was prophesying was that Peter was going to be crucified just like Jesus. So I want you to picture this, guys. So Jesus has already had an encounter with the cross of Christ, and he bailed. And now he's going to have to face another cross. And isn't this so cool of Jesus? You're not going to bail this time, Peter. You're not, your faith's not going to fail. You're going to persevere to the end. And it's actually going to be your death that is one of the biggest ways you're going to bring me glory. And you'll succeed. You won't back back away. 
God's calling some of you to some hard things. And, and so I, at first I was wondering, I don't know that I'd like God to tell me that. If that's my future, could you have kept that one from me? Except isn't there something about it that says, oh, so I'm not going to end my life as a failure? I have to, I've, I've, listen, I deal with failure all the time. I, I've already pictured my, my tombstone. Here lies Billy Ray's, the kissing pastor, and he couldn't do anything else. He just, he, ju- he was just, the, oh. isn't it great? Isn't it great to know that Jesus says, I'm going to bring you home. You might stumble and fall and I'll lead you into repentance with my kindness and mercy. I'll restore your calling. I'll grow your love for me and for others. And you'll bring me glory even at the very last second of your life. Wow, it's so awesome, isn't it? Ancient writers state that about 34, so so John was, from what we think, John was writing this after this had already happened to Peter. And the tradition says, Eusebius, and some pretty good, there's pretty good evidence that, that Peter was so in love with Jesus, he, he, just, he, he knew he had to be crucified by, by the Romans. But he said, I'm not worthy. Can crucify me upside down because my death is nothing like his death. I'm not bearing the wrath of God. I'm just, I'm just being, death is just bringing me home. But his death brought me salvation. And so he asks to be, to be crucified upside down. Guys, how do you explain a life like that if it's not Jesus? Uh, William Borden, this is in your notes, he was a millionaire who gave away the entire family fortune entrusted to him because he had become a Christian and he had determined to go to China to spend his life as a missionary to the Uyghur Muslims there. So to do that, he first went to Cairo to learn Arabic. And while he was there, he contracted cerebral meningitis. And he died at 25 years old. In his Bible were found the words that he wrote apparently before he died. No reserves. No retreats. No regrets. And then the words on his tombstone in the American Cemetery in Cairo read this. Apart from faith in Christ, there's no explanation for a life such as his. That'd be great to write on all of our tombstones. That the only explanation for the patience and sacrifice and constant forgiveness you're giving to others, and and even though it hurts you, and even though it puts you in a position of being wronged and suffering wrongs, that, that we keep loving Jesus, and we keep loving his people, and the only explanation could be, this can't have come from him. It must have come from his Christ. And so Jesus, he says to, G, to Peter, follow me, and the tense is, and keep following me for the rest of your life, and this is the last point. The love, is, love of Christ is greater than we can imagine. And that's John 21, 20 through 25. So this is, so here he is, you've, you've had this amazing moment with Jesus, and you're learning, okay, I'm going to be crucified, but, but I'm going to bring God glory even at the end of my life, and that is so good. And I guess they're walking now, and Jesus is walking with Peter, and John, I guess, is kind of trying to hear, you know, can you picture John saying, hey, wait, can you say that again? I, I just, I'm trying to get all this down. Um, and so there's John chasing him, and Peter is, it's the classic squirrel. 
Isn't it? I mean, so here he is. They're having this amazing talk and Peter notices John. What about him? What about him? I've got to die. What about him? Is he going to die? What about him? Are you ever like that? Listen, I think Christians are, are, have the most spiritual ADD ever. I, I just think we do. I just think it's so easy. How many times you go, oh man, I'm going to pray for an hour this morning. And you're there and you're in the Word. And it's been five minutes. And you start going, you know, coffee would probably help my prayer time. And so you, and, and, so, and here we go. It's just, just squirrel, squirrel. <laughs> and Jesus is firm. He says, if it's my will that he live until I come again, <laughs> what is that to you? Peter, just like you did with the wind and the waves, if you take your eyes off me by comparing your life to others, you're going to sink just as fast as you did at sea. You ever notice that? You, and, and listen, we always compare our lives with, with what we think, well, gosh, I, don't, I can't believe they get what they get. They don't, even, they don't even work hard. They don't come early for work. They don't stay late. And they get the promotion. And there's so many things that we do. We compare our walk with other people's walk, and we do it in the church. And so he's saying... What is it to you if my will is that you die a young, at a younger age on the cross and he live an old, full life and he dies of old age? He's the only one that apparently didn't die of martyrdom. Guys, the love of Christ is so compelling that it protects us from compromising our faith by the comparisons we make about our lives with the lives of others. You'll kill contentment if you, if you compare are you, are you struggling with contentment? Is there this comparison that you keep doing with your life and other, other Christians' lives? And then John speaks up to say, oh, and by the way, I'm the one that Peter was asking about. This is the way he closes the book. I'm the one that Peter was asking about. And while Peter's calling was to die for Christ... My calling was to live a long life for Christ and to write down as an eyewitness the signs and the teachings that Jesus had done. The Holy Spirit led him to record seven specific signs as well as other miracles and the teaching Jesus had given so that the theme of our book could come to pass in our lives. That these things were written so that we could believe Christ is the Son of God and in believing have life in his name. And haven't we seen that as we've studied this book? We've seen in the gospel the seven signs of glory, changing water into wine, healing the royal official's son, healing the paralytic, feeding the 5,000, walking on water, healing the man born blind, raising Lazarus from the dead. We've read in John's gospel about Jesus being the word. The word became flesh, the only begotten son, the comforter, the king of the Jews, the bread of life, the light of the word, the the world, the door for the sheep, the good shepherd, the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth and the life, the true vine, the giver of living water, and in the words of Thomas, our Lord and our God. And most wonderfully, he suffered for the sins of his people. He was crucified, died and was buried, and three days later, God raised him from the dead. That's what we've learned in the Gospel of John. And John says, even after all we've seen and heard and studied in this book, 
you and I have not begun to even imagine how wonderful he is. <laughs> he says, all that, all, all, Jesus is all of that and more. As great as we know his love to be, it's greater still. And this is how he closes it. If every square foot of our world could become a library, there would not be enough room to contain the books that would be written. Jesus is greater than we can imagine. As much as he, he's shown us of his goodness today, it doesn't compare to how great he is. But I think one day, if the, if the world couldn't have a library big enough to store it all, I think it's getting stored. You know where it's getting stored? In the cloud. <laughs> Eric, come up and bail me out of this. Come up and let's see. That is so silly. But, you know, I just think, I just think of Jesus returning to, um, to make all things new, to dry every tear from our eyes, to to eliminate Satan, to eliminate sin, a new creation, new world, bodies that will never die. I mean, just, I mean, it's just amazing. And he's going to come upon the clouds. That's where I get it, to start it up. But I do think that we're going to have all eternity to read and to learn all that he is toward us who believe. Would you stand with me and let us... I know it's a little bit, uh, well, it's not that, well, yeah, it's a little late, but, but there's, there's no kids to pick up. Is there, are you up here? Oh, you're up here. <laughs> Guys, let's stand and celebrate what the Lord has shown us through the gospel of John. Let's ask him, Lord, our, we love you. Oh, but please, we, we, we want our love to grow, to grow for you. We want our love to grow in marriage for spouses. Growth in love and forgiveness and acceptance. And God, we want our love to grow in discipling our children. We want our love to grow as a church family, Lord. We want our love to grow for the lost. Oh, Lord, we, we turn to you. We confess that the sins that we've done are great, but we also believe your grace is greater. And Jesus paid it all. We believe all of that, Lord. If you're on the prayer team this morning, would you come forward and be ready to pray for people? You don't have to wait till the end of the service. You can come and pray with people while, uh, while the singing is going on. If you're visiting with us today, it would be a joy for me to be able to meet you. I'm going to be back at the entrance of this little back little foyer back here on this side of the building. God bless you guys. Thank you.